Acts chapter 9, starting now with uh, verse 10. Luke records for us. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the home of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much, how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, he has sent me to you uh, that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received the sight at once, and he arose, and he was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent uh, some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached to Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on, the, on this name in Jerusalem? And has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews and who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them in Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed amongst the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they multiplied. In our last study, we saw uh, Saul, he's traveling uh, there on the road to Damascus. He had in his possession letters, which were basically amounted to uh, arrest warrants. They were from the high priest Caiaphas. And with these arrest warrants, he had authority to drag back to Jerusalem any man or woman that he found who were of the way. And uh, Saul, he was very literally a man on a mission. And that mission was to utterly destroy the early church. But a funny thing happened on the road to Damascus uh, that day. Saul met the risen Savior. 
and we read that there was a light, you know, brighter than the sun at noonday that shone all around him. And, uh, you know, you just try to imagine how bright that light must have been. A light so bright that it made the sun seem as a shadow, right? And in that light, Saul falls to the ground. Now, it's interesting to me, uh, the Apostle John said when he saw Jesus in Revelation 1.17, he said, we're slow on the slides back there, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And the idea is he fell like a dead man. He just collapsed, no strength whatsoever, nothing. That's what happens when you see the glory of the Lord. That's what happened to Saul. When he saw the glory of Jesus, the risen Savior, he was totally and completely overwhelmed. He was utterly devoid of any strength. His natural vitality had departed him. Saul was basically a pile of sweat and fear laying upon the ground, just hoping to survive this encounter. And as Saul is laying there on the ground, he hears his voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, trembling and frightened, said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And Saul immediately knew which Jesus this was who was speaking to him. And he said, Lord. And that word Lord there can also be translated master. Saul's in complete surrender now. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And as a result of this encounter with Jesus, Saul is left blind. Those who were with him had to lead him by the hand into the city of Damascus. And Saul was so shaken up by this encounter with Jesus, he's unable to eat for three days. He's unable to eat or drink for three days. And then we pick up the story in verse 10. And it says, now there was a certain disciple. Now, personally, I don't think that there could be a more vanilla description of uh, this man here that we're looking at than this description of a certain disciple, right? We're going to see that this man's name was Ananias. We don't actually know anything about him other than he was a disciple. He's not an apostle. And I think it would be safe to say that he wasn't anything special, really, and the reason I think that is because he's never referenced again in the Bible. We don't see his name any other place. He's just a disciple of Jesus, an everyday, ordinary follower of Jesus. He very easily could have been someone like any one of us, someone like you, someone like me. And again, it's, I think that because this is what we see throughout the book of Acts. God uses ordinary people like you and I to accomplish extraordinary things. But even though Ananias is just an ordinary guy, he does play a major role in church history. He's going to be the bridge between Saul of Tarsus and the world. And you know, please make no mistake about it. God has a major role 
for us to play in the history of the church. In verse 10, it says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. In the past, God spoke to his people through prophets. He spoke to them through dreams and visions. But in our times, the primary method that God uses to speak to us is through his son, through the word made flesh. Now, that's not to say that God can't or no longer speaks to us through dreams and visions. It's just not the primary way that he speaks through us. It's not the primary way he's chosen to speak to us today. Now, that being said, Peter on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 17 through 18, quoting Joel 2, said, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maidservants and on my, uh, on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. In the last days, uh, the days in which we're living in, actually, there's going to be an increase in prophecy, dreams and visions, but they'll never take the place of the word of God. So how does it work? You know, what is a, what, what's it like to have a vision? Well, here in Acts chapter 9, we have two examples. Saul, who was not seeking after the Lord, living outside of the will of God for his life, living in rebellion to the Lord. He has a vision that's kind of violent, um, you know, and frightening. He's knocked to the ground and he's just trembling and, and frightened, just trying to hang on for dear life. But on the other hand, here we have Ananias who has a vision of the Lord, and it seems to be just a beautiful conversation between the two of them. Why? Why is it that one was so very frightening, the other was so beautiful? Well, it's because Ananias is submitted to the Lord where Saul was not. Ananias answers and says to the Lord, here I am. And I think there's something to be learned from this. And I think uh, you would agree with me. It's better to be an Ananias than it is to be a Saul, isn't it? You know, Ananias says, here I am, Lord. And as I pointed out last week, it's a statement of pre-submission. It's a determined submission in advance to whatever it is the Lord would say. Again, the idea is, Lord, whatever it is you want to say to me, I'm already committed to obedience in my heart. And this is the attitude that blesses the Lord. So here again, God can speak to us through dreams and visions, through prophecies, but his primary method is speaking uh, to us today through his word. And we can't ever lose sight of that fact. Right, The Word of God, the Bible, the book that we have in our hands this morning is so very precious. Visions are okay. You know, I've had visions of the Lord, and I'd like to have more. But the Word of God 
is what we use to measure against those visions, right? It's what we use to measure dreams and prophecies to determine whether they are or are not actually from the Lord. Is that dream, vision, or prophecy contradicting the known word of God? Then it's not from God. And you know what? There's a real danger in seeking after dreams and visions, seeking after prophetic utterances. You know, if you're not well-versed in the Bible, if you're not well-versed in the Word, you can be led astray. That's how many people are led astray, right? It's so vital for us to know the Word of God inside and out. It's the measuring rod that God has given us to lead us and to guide us uh, it's the tool he's given us to ensure that what's being said or what's being done in his name is or is not from God. In verse 11, it says, So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he's praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. You know, someone might be tempted to say right about now, you know, Gary, there sure is a lot of details in this vision given to Ananias. Go to the street called Straight. You know, go to the house of Judas on that street. You know, go uh, there and there's going to be somebody there named Saul of Tarsus. He's going to be praying. And not only is he praying, He's having a vision of a man named Ananias coming to lay hands on him that he might receive sight. And you might be tempted to say, you know, I thought you said, Gary, that God doesn't give us the entire picture, the entire plan all at once, but he gives it to us just one step at a time. And when we take that next step, then he'll give us the next thing that he wants us to do. And, and that's right. That's what I said. But this situation here before us is a little bit different, okay? Uh, first off, it's not the entire picture. It's just what God wants Ananias to do, right? Secondly, God doesn't require blind leaps of faith on our part, as some people think, right? This potentially is a very dangerous situation that God is calling Ananias to do. Right? So God give, is giving him confirmations in advance that this is actually the Lord. God is lovingly and uh, graciously willing to meet the willing and obedient heart. Right? God is willing to confirm his call on each of our lives, on my life, on your life, um, especially when he calls us to do something radical or something that people may think is crazy, right? If Ananias had just heard some random voice saying, hey, dude, you know, I want you to go and pray for Saul of Tarsus, Ananias would be tempted to say to himself, like, where'd that come from? I mean, that's just a crazy idea. There's no way that can't be God. When God called our family to Europe, you know, I was more than willing to go. And, uh, you know, I was afraid, however, of getting out ahead of the Lord. I wanted to make sure it was God that I was following and, and not just stepping out in my flesh. And so I asked God to confirm it. He had to work in Tina's heart because she didn't want to go. 
You know, he had to work in my pastor's heart because he didn't want me to go. And he had to work in our kid's heart because they didn't want to go. So when he did all of those things, you know, I knew that it was God that was calling us to step out in faith. And the confirmations continued to be a witness uh, to us during times of discouragement. You know, when we found ourselves in, in really difficult, extremely difficult situations, you know, I, I would ask myself, uh, was it God or was it just me, you know, following my own sinful flesh? And that's why we're here. And then I look back on all those things that God did to confirm to us that this is where he brought us to. And those confirmations that he had given us, they were then a comfort to us that, that we did follow the Lord. And because, you know, they were comforting because we knew that it was the Lord that was leading us and we were able to endure. And that's what we're seeing here now in this chapter. God gives Ananias a checklist of things to confirm that it is, in fact, uh, the Lord who's speaking to him. He could go to a map and see that there's actually a street called Straight. You know, he could go to Google and find out that there's actually a Judas that lives on that street. And then he could go and knock on that door and ask, you know, the person that answered the door, hey, is there a Saul of Tarsus here? You know, yes, there is. In fact, he's in the other room praying right now. You know, without these confirmations, Ananias could have been walking into a very dangerous situation, trusting in what he thought was God uh, speaking to him, right? When it actually wasn't. But with these confirmations, Ananias could go forward with confidence and with boldness, knowing that the Lord was behind it all, leading and guiding and directing and in verse 13, then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he is authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on his name. How patient is our God? I mean, Ananias is surrendered. He's totally submitted. In fact, he's pre-submitted, as I mentioned earlier. But he wants to talk it over. <laughs> you know, he wants to just talk it over. And, and you know what? God doesn't strike him dead. God isn't offended that he wants to talk it over. You know, because the Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. Right? In a sense, Ananias says, Lord, are you sure? I mean, are we talking about the same guy? Are, are you aware of how, how much harm this guy's done to your saints? I mean... You know, do you want to take just a few more minutes and rethink this idea? Have you ever done that? Have you ever uh, said, Lord, are you sure? Do you really understand all that's going on here, Lord? I mean, isn't that all very human? I think it is. I know that I've explained things to the Lord in the, in the past. Lord, are you sure about that? You, you want me to do what? Do you really understand what you're asking me to do? And I think we can always rest in the fact that when God calls us to do something, he's at work on both ends of that equation. 
You know, God is speaking to Ananias, telling him uh, what to do. And at the same time, God has been working in Saul's heart, showing him what he's going to be doing, right? It's the way the Lord works, and we can rest in him. We can trust in him, that he's got it all under control. In verse 14, Ananias reminds the Lord that Saul has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on his name. Ananias reminds the Lord about Saul. But God, I think, would remind us that nothing is hidden from him. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing catches him by surprise. He sees everything and he knows everything. And there's no need for us to ever worry. He's got it. For he alone has all power and all authority. And it's he alone that gives authority. Nothing can come into our lives apart from him already filtering it, already uh, ordaining it to accomplish his purposes in our lives. We never have to be afraid of anything he might call us to do. We never have to be afraid to obey God. In verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Ananias, Jesus says, Saul is a chosen vessel of mine. I mean, to me, that's, that's amazing to think about it. How I desire to be a chosen vessel of the Lord. Isn't that what you desire too? You know, God calls Ananias to go and pray for Saul. And he reminds him that Saul is his chosen vessel. But isn't it true that Ananias is regular, everyday old follower of Jesus? Isn't it true that he was God's chosen vessel? Because Paul is going to bear Jesus' name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. But Ananias is going to bear the name of Jesus before Saul of Tarsus. Right? We must never compare. We must never get our eyes on and compare our calling with the calling of others. You know what? He's a pastor. Or she's a missionary. And, and you know what? I'm just a you know, fill in the blank, whatever. Paul will go on to be one of the most important men in the history of the world. Even secular historians confess that he's one of the most significant figures in all of history. But who was sent to pray for him? It was Ananias, right? Just a regular old follower of Jesus. Paul was a chosen vessel of the Lord, but we could say the same thing about Ananias. He too was a chosen vessel of the Lord. And I think that God would remind each of us this morning. He would say to half of us here this morning, he is a chosen vessel of mine. And then to the other half of us that are here this morning, he would say, she is a chosen vessel of mine. Right? God has chosen each of us before the foundation of the world to bear his name before those people he puts around us, those people he puts in our life. 
So I think the question then is, are you walking in obedience to him? Are you walking in obedience to that call? Are you in obedience to the Lord? Are you currently engaged in that which the Lord has called you to do? And that's bearing the name of Jesus before the people that he places in your life. Or has things gotten in the way of you carrying out that call? You know, Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, right? That, that verse reminds us that it's not too late to get to work doing those things that God has called us to do. You know, if, if we've let things kind of get in the way of us sharing the gospel with other people, boy, you know what? My encouragement would be just run to the Lord and ask him for forgiveness. Forgiveness for not being obedient to that call upon your life. Asking him then to open doors for you to share Christ. You know, to lead you and to anoint you and to, to um, give you divine appointments, to give you the words to share you know, that he would put his words in your mouth in order to share Jesus effectively with the people that he's placed around you. And you know what? The beautiful thing about that type of prayer is God is longing to answer those prayers. He'll do it. That's his heart's desire for each of us. His desire is for you to tell others what he's doing in your life and then to assure them that he's willing to do those similar things and greater in some cases, in their life too. In verse 16, it says, For I will show you how many things, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul is going to bear the name of Jesus before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Doesn't that sound amazing? You know what? It sounds amazing because it is amazing. It's ever so amazing. But there are also hard times ahead. Ministry isn't easy. <laughs> if it were, everyone would be doing it. Ministry isn't easy, but it has a glory that comes with it that is like nothing else in this lifetime. It's the most exciting thing to be led by the Holy Spirit, sharing Jesus with ruined and hopeless lives. You know, praying for them to receive Christ, seeing uh, the Lord raise them up, giving them a new life, and then seeing them running, charging for Jesus Christ. There's nothing more exciting than to see God work and to see God work through you. Tina and I, we've been involved in ministry formally for 28 years. And I can tell you, 28 years of the lowest of lows, but at the same time, 28 years of the highest of highs. Uh, you know, 28 years of seeing God being ever so faithful to us, seeing God working in friends and families. 28 years of seeing God bringing us through the darkest of dark times, the hardest of hard times. And I can stand before you this morning, and I can, and I can confess before you this morning that it's all been worth it. In my mind, there is nothing that I would trade these last 28 years 
uh, of following the Lord, serving the Lord. There's nothing I would trade them for. The world couldn't offer me enough to trade those years. And you know what the good news is? The greatest of all things lies ahead of us, right? We need to fix our eyes on eternity. God is going to show Saul how many things he must suffer for the Lord's namesake in, abundant, uh, in labors more abundant, stripes above measure, imprisonments, beating, shipwrecks, you know, even a stoning and perils of robbers and perils of the Jews and perils of the Gentiles, hard work, tiredness, weariness, sleeplessness, hungers, thirst, fastings, cold nights, not to mention the weight of the well-being of the churches being placed upon his shoulders. God showed him what was ahead of him. And what was Saul's response? He said in Acts 20, verse 24, he says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life um, dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul goes on to say, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In a sense, when the Lord showed Saul the many things that he would suffer for Jesus' namesake, it was as if Saul said, What's the worst thing that could happen? You know, we, we might say, well, Paul, you could die for one. And Paul would say to each of us this morning, no, my life is not my own, right? The worst thing that could happen to me is I would live a long and fruitful life for my Savior. And then I would be received into heaven. I mean, heaven is a reality. Heaven is in our future. We can never forget that, right? We need to allow that to stir us. We never need to fear. We have every reason to trust in the Lord. Every believer, every person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ and is walking with him, they've been delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6 says that you have been adopted by Jesus Christ himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has accepted us in, a, in a, the beloved. You don't have that slide? Ephesians 1, 5 and 6. Well, the next one is Ephesians. He goes on to say 1, 13 and 14. Okay, uh, saying, having believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the uh, redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Yeah, I see that maybe that first slide I had messed up. You might want to check it. Uh, it may have said uh, Colossians. Yeah, uh, but I think it is Ephesians uh, 1, 5 and 6. The Bible says that we were purchased. The Bible says that you were bought with a price. You've been redeemed. And, and you weren't redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. 
but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and we are on our way to heaven. Right? And one day, one day very soon, I believe, we'll meet our Savior face to face in heaven, if not in the air, at the rapture, right? And we'll forever be with him. What's the worst thing that could happen to us as we follow Jesus Christ with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength in complete obedience to him? What's the worst thing that could happen? You know what? In actuality, following him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that's actually what living is all about. That's living for him, being led by the Holy Spirit in total submission to his will. That's true life. That's really living. Living our lives for Jesus and obedience to him means fruitfulness in this life. Paul said in Ephesians, uh, sorry, Philippians 1, 20 through 21, he said, with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell for I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to, de to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain on the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. Jesus said, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Paul went from the persecutor to the persecuted. He went from the one who wanted to kill believers to the one whom people wanted to kill. You know, which one would you choose to be? You know, no one wants to be a victim, but anyone, anyone who knows Jesus, anyone who's being led by the Holy Spirit, whose life is given over to Jesus, knows that being persecuted for his namesake is a thousand times, 10,000 times better than living without him. And if he were ever to call us to give our lives for his glory, to lay down our lives for his namesake, you know what? We would have nothing to fear and heaven to gain. And verse 17 says, And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him. And, and you know, just in the middle of that verse, I think you need to stop and recognize that a simple act of submission from an ordinary follower of Jesus. Ananias had no idea how that simple act of submission would change the world. I ask you, am I a fool for believing that the Lord wants to do great things in our lives as we submit fully to him? Think about it. Is that a foolish thought? I don't think so. Verse 17 says, And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Ananias laid hands on Saul. You know, sometimes a loving touch can be so powerful in the life of a person that is broken. Ananias calls him Brother Saul. You know, how healing those words of acceptance must have been to Saul. You know, I don't care where you come from. I don't care what you've done. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you're a brother or sister in the Lord, right? And now I think it's important here to notice that Saul is a believer, right? When you believe, placing your faith in the risen Savior, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He comes into your life and he lives within your heart. You know, that's to say he lives in your being. He wants to be seen in your life. He wants to be expressed through your life. But there's also a secondary feeling that's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the coming upon of the Holy Spirit, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Call it whatever you want to call it, but it's when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and fills you, giving you the power to live for Jesus Christ, power to walk with him, power to be a witness. The Christian life cannot be lived in our own strength. You know, if you're trying to live for Jesus and the power of your own might, you're going to come up short and you're going to experience defeat and discouragement. It's just the way it is. I know. Believe me. I know. Trust me. Christianity needs to be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is available to all of us just by asking. Without the Holy Spirit filling us, empowering us to live for Jesus Christ, you know, it's simply failure waiting to happen. But with him, however, it's victory and glory. And Ananias lays hands on Saul and prays for him. And verse 18 says, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he rose and was baptized. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, says, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He didn't know what it was. It wasn't scales, but it was something like scales. The Greek word translated here, scales, it's only used here in the New Testament. It's not used any other place in the New Testament. It is, however, used one other place in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's in Leviticus 11 where it talks about clean fish having scales. Kenneth Weiss, the Greek scholar, he translates um, Acts 9.18 saying, something having the appearance of incrustations. That's what fell. It, it looked like an incrustation, right? You know, I, I don't know what it was, but I think that the Holy Spirit mentions it because Paul was not only healed from his physical blindness, but he was spiritually blind also, right? He was blinded by the legalism of the Pharisees trying to gain God's approval by works of the law, trying to gain uh, a right standing with God, trying to gain a righteousness before God through outward efforts. And when Saul's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's not only healed of his physical blindness, but he's healed of his spiritual blindness as well. Now, Saul is able to see. 
He's able to see the truth, and now he knows the truth. You know what, what happened here is God broke Saul. You know, maybe he's in the process of breaking you. You know, I know he's at work in my life, breaking me. You know, but his intention was not to leave Saul broken. His intention was to fill him with the Holy Spirit and give him eyes that truly see. Before Saul was broken, he was filled with himself and he was blinded with, uh, blinded to the truth. You know, oftentimes my prayer is, Lord, scrape me out of my cup so that I can be filled with you. You know, like John the Baptist said, let me decrease that you might increase, Lord. You know, and let me see, Lord. Let me see you like never before. In the early verses of Acts chapter 9, Saul is converted and surrenders to the risen Savior. And in Acts 9.18, he's baptized. Now that's the biblical recipe. We're to believe and be baptized. So again, if you've never been baptized after you've placed your faith in Jesus, you know, if you're watching online, if that describes you, uh, you know what, we need to talk. Let's make arrangements. Let's get you baptized. Verse 19 so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples in Damascus. Saul spent some time with the disciples in Damascus. You know, it's just the way my mind thinks. Um, but I wonder on that first Sunday when Saul showed up for church, you know, I, I wonder if there wasn't some awkwardness in the air. You know, Ananias probably stood up in the fellowship uh, you know, to introduce Saul to the church. Hey, everyone, this is Saul of Tarsus. And the church probably got really quiet. And then somebody in the back row said, the Saul of Tarsus? Yeah, that's right, Saul of Tarsus. The one who kills Christians? Yeah, that's the one. In fact, you know what? Funny thing, he was coming here to kill you too. But, you know... On the way here, he met Jesus. And you can just hear someone in the church shout out, are you an idiot, Ananias? Are you kidding me? He's faking. He's not a Christian, but you're a fool. He's fooled you so he can find us and kill us. You know, I think that I would probably be skeptical too, wouldn't you? Paul said, 1 Timothy 1.13, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it and I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And he goes on to say in 1 Timothy 1.16, However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And I mentioned it last week, and, I'm, and I want to mention it again. Paul's conversion, his salvation story, needs to be an encouragement to each one of us. First, anyone can be saved. No one is out of reach of God's ability to save and change a life for eternity. Secondly, anyone can be saved. Your loved ones, your friends, your co-workers, those people you know that just have the 
hardest of hard hearts, God is able to reach them. But there's something else that I think it's extremely important to notice, right? Saul obtained mercy, right? From the Lord, of course, but also from the church. Ananias calls him brother, right? Saul spent time with the disciples. They welcomed him. They embraced him. They accepted him. They were merciful. Like many of you, you know what? I have a questionable past. Yesterday, last week, last month, last year. I mean, I need love and mercy. We need love and mercy. Each of us need love and mercy from their brothers and sisters in the church. And as brothers and sisters of the church, we should be extending love and mercy to those around us. That's actually what the Lord intends for his church to look like. Jesus said, John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. It was through the church that Saul realized that the people he was persecuting weren't anything like he thought they were. You know what? They weren't criminals. They were loving. They were simple people just wanting to live their lives in obedience to Jesus Christ, their Savior. And that's what we need to be. That Paul, Paul learned that everything that he believed in regards to Christians was false. Right? And I think the lesson uh, for us is as we extend love and mercy to each other, to those around us, to those that come into our presence, you know, that can be just as big of a witness to them as the Bible study that, that is presented to them. Now, I don't want you to panic, okay? I don't want you to worry. I'm aware of the time. We're not going to make it to verse 31. But uh, we are going to take a break here. We'll pick up uh, verse 20 next time we get together. But just a, a few um, final thoughts. You know, we don't measure success in ministry by numbers. We measure success in ministry by obedience and faithfulness to our call. We never need to be afraid of God's call upon our lives, right? Because where he calls us, he's going to enable us. He's going to provide for us. And we never know how the love and mercy that we extend to others will impact the lives on, of, of those people on this side of heaven. You know, but as we do all for the glory of our beloved Savior, one day in heaven we will receive the crown and one day in heaven we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And at that very moment, I promise you, at that very moment that those words ring in our ears, every struggle, every trial, every ounce of pain and suffering will pale in light of the glory of the Lord. You know, for believers this morning, again, I, my encouragement is let's seek, let's purpose to glorify the Lord in our daily lives. Let's live for him with reckless abandonment. Let's seek to know him more and to make him known 
to know him intimately, to know his heart, and then share that with other people. Let's pray. Father God, that is my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for our family. Lord, that's my prayer for us as a church. Lord, that we would just draw ever so close to you. That we would never get our eyes on the call and what other people are doing, what their ministry looks like. But Lord, we would seek to be faithful to our call, to the things you've called us to. Lord, that we would just be loving, kind, merciful, gracious to those that you bring into our lives. And Lord, that we would share with them the wonderful things you've done for us, the wonderful works that you've accomplished in our lives and assure them that that's what you want to do in theirs. Lord, use us to bring glory to your name, Lord. Use us. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.